This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 29th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. President Obama suspended the program that equips local police with surplus military equipment that included mine-resistant armored personnel carriers and 50-caliber weaponry. Now the Trump White House is restoring the program. Cato's Clark Neely and Adam Bates comment. We've got to go back to the beginning. Uh, in 1997, President Clinton signed um, into law a program that included this, this what's now called the 1033 program that makes available at no cost surplus military equipment to local law enforcement agencies that request it. Um, there was that, that sort of opened the floodgates and since then about $6 billion worth of equipment have gone to local law enforcement agencies. More than 80 percent of counties have received at least something through the program. Um, and President Obama made some modest restrictions to the program but didn't end it. Uh, so so the, the reforms that the President Obama issued, uh, they basically banned the transfer of uh, a, only a handful of, uh, I guess, exotic um, weapons and equipment. So, uh, grenade launchers, uh, 50 caliber rifles, uh, tracked vehicles, military camouflage uniforms, and bayonets. Funnily enough, uh, and despite my uh, thought that uh, I couldn't imagine why the federal government was giving local police bayonets, and I was curious if that was just something that was thrown in. Uh, apparently, the Obama administration actually did recover about 1,600 bayonets from local police. Out of 12,000 issued, so it kind of makes you wonder what's going on with the remaining ones. But nevertheless, that's that's unfortunately um, this, this contrast with the way local police uh, agencies try to describe what's going on with this program. And when you're talking about tracked vehicles and bayonets and grenade launchers, um, the idea that these kinds of um, materials, this kind of equipment is actually needed for day-to-day -day law enforcement um, is either highly implausible, highly disturbing, or actually probably both. Why do police want this equipment? I mean, it's it's a combination of things. They will tell you that it's it's important to be able to protect both their own and civilian lives. Um, the idea being that they are constantly faced with situations where they are heavily outgunned by, uh, you know, terrorists or drug criminals who hold up somewhere, and it's a, it's essentially it's virtually like a street battle. Um, that happens once in a very very great while. Um, what this equipment is mostly used for is to equip. SWAT teams and what we now know or at least we can surmise because there's virtually no transparency here but from data that Radley Balco and others have been able to gather, um, these uh, SWAT teams, these military equipped SWAT teams are used almost always uh, for low-level uh, drug stuff like serving drug warrants, um, including in situations where they don't even have any reason to believe um, that there's uh, you know, weapons on the premises. And so it's a, it's a contrast. The police will tell you it's vitally important that they have this equipment to protect their own lives and civilian lives. But there's no data to support that. And to the contrary, the data uh, sharp pointly, sharps, <laughs> points sharply in the other direction. There's also just an element of, of human nature here. I mean, I want some of this stuff to play around with. Uh, and, and, and we have uh, some examples uh, of, of government officials basically admitting that, that this is um, part of the motivation. So uh, a city councilman in, in Keene, New Hampshire, uh, which applied for funds from the federal government so they could buy a mine-resistant vehicle, uh, they listed their local pumpkin festival as a possible terrorist target on their application. Uh, and when the city council was confronted with 
with this. Uh, one of the city council members explicitly said, uh, well, okay, so we're not really worried about terrorism, but that's what you have to put on the application if you want the funds. And what red-blooded American cop doesn't want to drive around in a toy like this? Uh, and that, I think, was refreshingly candid. I mean, this is just about incentives and, and human nature. Part of the reason they want this stuff is because the federal government is offering it to them for free. So the uh, the current president has rescinded uh, these minor limitations that uh, President Obama put in place. What message does that send to cops? I think it sends a message that the, the president supports the increased militarization of police, both in terms of equipment and mindset. Um, the idea being that police are in fact outgunned, they are in fact at great risk, they are in fact beleaguered and the president has come out and made clear to them that he believes an important uh, part of the um, solution to those uh, problems which uh, are frankly mostly in, you know, problems of, of image that have been um, claimed by police but not supported by the data. Um, but the president's on board with the idea that they need to be more heavily armed and more militaristic in their approach to, to dealing with civilians. And you couldn't imagine a more backwards approach to modern law enforcement. It is exactly the opposite direction that we need to be going. Right. So it's important to note, uh, again, that, that yeah, some of, the, some of the attention to this makes it sound like uh, President Obama basically did away with this program. Uh, and, that, and that wasn't the case. This was a very modest reform made by the Obama administration. But as a corollary to that, uh, the fact that even that small reform was too much uh, for, for President Trump and that he thinks the police really need bayonets, they really need camouflage uniforms, they really need grenade launchers, uh, there is a signaling mechanism there. And it's, it's exactly what Clark said. Uh, Clark, you said the word civilians and police interactions with civilians. But of course, police are civilians. Right. That's, I mean, technically they're, they're civilian in the sense that they're not military. Uh, but sometimes in this context, we use the word civilian to emphasize the distinction between ordinary people like you, me, and Adam and people who have been clothed with the power of arrest by the government and also carry weapons to affect those arrests. That's an important distinction. And the people who, who have that immense power that's been conferred on them by the government should be held to a much higher standard uh, in, in relevant settings than the rest of us. And in fact, the truth of the matter is that police are held consistently to a much, much lower standard um, than ordinary uh, non-police civilians. Um, there are all kinds of protections that are built into the system, all kinds of double standards that effectively um, diminish the accountability and diminish what's expected of police officers um, in potentially violent confrontations with civilians. So add that to that culture and that mindset, now add that to that, this increased uh, militarization in terms of equipment and the symbolism of it, the symbolism of the president saying, I don't think you guys are heavily armed enough. Let me open the floodgates again. Um, and that adds up to a disaster. Uh, Joe Arpaio, the, the former sheriff of Maricopa County in Arizona, was recently pardoned by the current president. And what message does that send to police? Again, I think this is all part of, of the same um, package from this administration. So I, I think the, the message is I, I, speaking as President Trump, I support what you're doing. Uh, I understand that, that um, you guys are facing a lot of criticism, but I don't think there's any merit in this criticism. So one of the things that uh, Attorney General Sessions said yesterday when announcing uh, this kind of this remilitarization effort uh, was that these, the, the concerns about militarization were, quote, superficial. 
Uh, and, and we get that across this administration when it comes to complaints or, or criticisms of the way uh, our criminal justice system works or the way uh, police work, that, that these concerns are kind of out in the wilderness and there's not any real substance to them. So, so this idea that uh, Joe Arpaio, who was convicted of criminal contempt for refusing to follow a court order that ordered him to stop violating the constitutional rights of people under his authority, uh, the idea that this is something that, that is, is insubstantial and that, and that he didn't really do anything wrong, I think, is the message there. Let me just add to that. Uh, if you had to pick a poster boy uh, for disregard for civil rights, for disregard for basic human dignity, for disregard um, for the duty of care to people under your control and under your custody, you would pick Joe Arpaio. He is a terrible person. Uh, he has done terrible things and he's reveled in them. He hasn't been apologetic. He uh, is, is the face of the kind of the deviant strand of law enforcement in this country that, that thinks that the answer to the problems that we have um, is more aggression, more force, more violence and less concern for civil rights. And I think that the president's decision to pardon Sheriff Arpaio under the circumstances is extraordinarily symbolic and extraordinarily troubling. What is the racial component here? Well, Sheriff Arpaio is a sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, and, and like most border states, they have significant immigration problems. And, and he's been, again, kind of a poster child for the, you know, sort of the most uh, um, nationalistic, jingoistic response to those immigration pro pro problems, which is to stop everybody, um, to look for evidence of citizenship and lock up anybody uh, that even looks like they might be from another country and not just lock them up, but put them in these, uh, you know, these, these outdoor tent cities that uh, Arpaio is famous for maintaining out in the desert in the 100 degree plus heat, um, you know, make them wear pink underwear and, and, and humiliate them in all sorts of different ways. All of these things are part of the, the undisputed record of his background and his behavior. And so, um, you know, it's sort of hard to say what his motivation for doing this is. Who knows if it's racial or not? Um, but he certainly seems to revel particularly in, in you know, directing this kind of attention and these kinds of tactics towards uh, people who are believed to be immigrants. Uh, Adam, you and I uh, spoke about how Montana has sort of dialed back this police militarization. Uh, what should states that want to, uh, you know, lower the temperature, lower the lower the uh, tension between uh, regular folks and cops? Uh, what should states and localities be doing? Well, so states do have some ability here to to minimize the the damage, and it it comes from. Uh, reforming their civil asset forfeiture programs that that incentivize police uh, to stop people and take their cash. Uh, they can try to prohibit their law enforcement agencies from go from working directly with the federal government and cutting the local legislatures out of the uh, equipment procurement process. Uh, but one of the problems that we've seen with this administration, uh, especially with the Department of Justice, is that uh, Attorney General Sessions is is very willing. Uh, to try and take punitive measures against states and localities that that try to frustrate uh, the, the federal government's aims when it comes to law enforcement. So uh, the, the threats to funding when it comes to, to sanctuary cities, when it comes to uh, places that are, are not uh, enforcing federal drug law on behalf of the DEA, who are not enforcing uh, federal immigration law on behalf of, of, uh, of the federal immigration services, uh, this administration has has tried to punish those uh, states and localities. So I think there is a message being sent uh, from the administration that that states should uh, be wary of of trying to limit their fed, their law enforcement's participation in these programs. But uh, if a state is willing to, uh, that they're able to do that. 
I just want to add that, that it's important for people to understand that the utter lack of transparency and accountability here. So, for example, of all the, the myriad uh, uh, you know, details that law enforcement keeps track of in terms of um, arrests and potential crimes and so forth. It is astonishing that that virtually no law enforcement agency uh, keeps track of the um, use of SWAT teams to conduct raids. They just don't have any information about how often they use them or for what purpose. And many, many law enforcement agencies don't even keep track um, of civilian deaths at the hands of police officers. In other words, civilian-involved shootings. It is astonishing that those um, uh, bits of information are not tracked and maintained and publicly disclosed. Um, but unfortunately, I think that is you know, sort of further evidence of the mindset of at least some of the, uh, the law enforcement personnel involved here. They basically don't want people to know how often they're using this equipment and how often it's costing the lives of, of ordinary people. And that's wrong. The chief of police in Burlington, Vermont, is a man named Brandon Del Pozo. And he there are several chiefs in America that have resisted this push for militarization. And, and when Chief Del Pozo uh, took his police department out of the 1033 program, what he said was, uh, we have the equipment to handle routine law enforcement. And the kind of stuff they're giving us is equipment that we, we, may, we probably will never need and we may need once in a lifetime. Uh, but in exchange for that equipment, my guys are starting to, to look at people as if they're soldiers. We're starting to have this militarized mindset, and I don't want that for my police. Uh, so there are police chiefs around the country as well who can, who can take a stand on this issue and, and reject that because they think it frustrates their mission. Adam Bates is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Clark Neely is the vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 